for today. Our gate flung open, every gate in the neighborhood flung open, world at large, world at home, hand in hand, any spring morning. Honeybees at the fennel, cat between our legs, then out of sight. We pass the riverside neighbor's magnolia. We pass the big house with the hundred-year-old paint job. We pass the shotgun house with a fresh eggs, five dollars a dozen sign. We pass a cottage shuttered till noon. Ah, yes, joy of sleeping in all the raised houses. Oh, crawl spaces with cool, packed dirt. We pass the butterfly sanctuary sign, milkweed, monarch, black swallow. We pass morning porch sitters, my kid's hand free, her rushing, her lolling. Morning? Hot already? Yes, already, yes. Spring morning. A neighbor sweeping sidewalks, smiles, nods. A neighbor clearing a storm drain, hip boots, gloves. A giant deflating Easter bunny slumped over its carrot. Here, the garden wall of wisteria. Mental note, haiku a day. Garden wall lizards, rubescent throats throbbing. Turf, love, both, rubescent. Cerise, carmine. We pass the open window. Blink, blink of a piano. We pass a trash truck, her jumping through sprinklers. Like your bunny ears. My sun hat lifts as if in answer. Hold on. We turn at a pothole turned birdbath. Finch ablutions. Turn onto the avenue at the big church. Birdseed underfoot. Wedding last night? Here, the streetcar barn. Here, a new ghost bike. Fresh silk flowers. Framed photo. How long are shadows? What did I dream last night? with this in the rocker, with this poem on my lap. Any given night, nowhere to go, nowhere to get to. A ghost bike drifts lane to lane, moonlight, handlebars. What did she dream in her high bed? Kiddo balancing on a curb, catch her sleeve. What did they dream? Pavement sweeper, porch sitters, trash collectors, what do I know of anyone's inside lives? Door open, look. A whole house under that sunny riot of cat's claw in bloom. Here, our favorite house, yellow with a great palm. Palm where wild parrots roost. We agree. Palm trees exist. Yes, yes. Pee today. I remember how we began kiddo and I naming one thing over another. Last month we read from Alphabet, Christensen's apricot trees exist, apricot trees exist. So we began to add, letter by letter, day by day, azaleas exist, azaleas exist, bees exist, bumblebees exist, and three days ago, Sunday, magnolias exist. Magnolias older than bees, our riverside neighbor's magnolia. What about today? Palm trees. And what else exists?
Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Of Poetry Podcast. I'm your host, Han Vanderhart, and you've just been listening to Carolyn Hembry read from her poem for today. Carolyn Hembry's third poetry collection for today is forthcoming from LSU Press. She is also the author of Skinny and Rigging to a Chevy into a Time Machine and Other Ways to Escape a Plague, winner of the Trio Award and the Rochelle Ratner Memorial Award. Her poems appear in Beloit Poetry Journal, Copper Nickel, Poetry Daily, The Southern Review, and other publications. She teaches in the MFA program at the University of New Orleans and serves as the poetry editor of Bayou Magazine. Hello and welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Han. It's so nice to get to talk to you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for opening with um, reading a section from your long poem, which comprises a fair portion of your forthcoming book for today, out this month. And I, I thought since we... I mean, wh- whichever way you would like to go, I I am happy if and excited to talk about fiction and non-memoir and fiction and you know, the poem speaker versus the poet or long poems. I just I think there are so many places we can begin. You know, parenting during COVID, the world is our oyster. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, wow! Parenting during COVID was tough. It was really tough, right? <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of crying. We did. Too. I I remember it, it was it was just incredibly sad. I live in New Orleans, and my child goes to a charter school by name, but but it's a public school, right? And many many of the kids, you know, get free lunches at school and access a lot of other um, resources and needs the the whole community through the school. And I remember when the school was shut down, though meals were being still brought um, for folks in the school parking lot. I remember the, you know, hearing they were they were put on Zoom again, you know, because it was all this stuff of like you're on Zoom, then you're back in school for a little bit. Uh Oh, we're having another shutdown back in school for a little bit. Uh, And so they uh, were told that they were going to have to remain on Zoom. And I remember hearing, you know, you would there was this weirdness of hearing these teachers trying to navigate this and talk to these fairly young children. It was 2020. So my child was at the time 10 or 11, thereabouts. And I remember hearing them told that they were going to remain on Zoom and not get to go to school and hearing this child just break out in tears and just loudly sobbing in the other room that they couldn't just return, you know, um, and, and, and get to, to be together. And of course, all of the things that happened inside of the homes that, you know, the parents, all of us were speaking for myself, you know, out of my tree with all this business. It's really rough, really rough. Yeah. And I think my youngest was just starting, was supposed to start kindergarten. So they had their like little preschool graduation in the parking lot. And they were the happiest person, actually. They were like really happy with it. But um, I was just reading the other day about um, a group of, like, of course, it was parents, but I think it was moms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I want to say it was Pittsburgh. It was called Reading by Third. And it's like a group that joined together. It was it was all these parents with kids my my child's age who were supposed to learn to read. And they hadn't learned to read because through the pandemic. Um, and so Reading by Third was the goal. 
And I was like so surprised by that. And then I realized I was like, oh, well, I was home and our youngest like brought me the book and I taught that like I just taught them. I wasn't even thinking too much about that. But it's it's really tough. It's really hard on mental health. But also there were elements of being able to be with your children. Um, that was good in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just depended child to child, parent to parent. Yeah. Work, all of that. And the age of the child, I think probably was, you know, like where they were in their development. From what I've just seeing the kids in, in my child's class kind of over the years unpacking it, you know, because um, a lot of what I think comes out comes out later as it does for all of us. Uh, I think that it was really hard on those going through adolescence to not be bodily in each other's presence for all of the awfulness of that, in, at least in my memory. Being 11, 10, it was a freaking nightmare, school was. However, and there's something about that necessity of what all those group dynamics that they didn't get. And so a lot of them seemed to catch up, be catching up in the years after to me. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the, the kindergarten the documents uploaded every day through the Chromebook that nearly broke me, but wow. our older child is the one that was like super depressed and like, you know, I guess they were born in 2011. So that was, it was so much harder on them, the civil social group. And I think the brain development and emotional development and they're meant oh to be God, in packs yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, this kind of brings us into a nice segue with me about hybridity too in your work, because um, for today, you know, like when I first opened your your manuscript and I looked at the table of contents and I was like, oh, <laughs> where's my, you know, exhausting 60, page, 60 item table of contents, right? That I always feel when I open up one of my books, I'm like, oh God, this table of contents. It was so nice to see something so clean and simple. But then I'm also like, Where's the big big boy? Like what's taking up most of the room, right? Um, or are these all long poems? Like, because I had I didn't know yet. Right. Um, and so it was really wonderful, like getting to the point where I open up, get to the porch today and realizing like this poem is the rest of the book because <laughs> there's something I just I feel like like the large poems are so expansive and they let the reader kind of rest into them. Like it's not that. Like when you're reading a collection of poems that every page is a different poem, you have a new beginning and a new end, like every single open, open, open. Um, and I think that's why you can read a few page of poetry and be pretty stated like, oh, I've read <laughs> two or three. I'm great. You know, um, and the attention and Rachel Zucker, I'm, um, if you read her long poem essay, yeah, I'm sure you're teaching a class, you know, that's an incredible essay. Um, and it's just a different kind of attention. Oh, I know. And and her article is actually, this is crazy. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but literally like that's what I assigned for my students to read for next week, along with a packet of of long, what I call, I'm kind of digging, designating them as longish poems, which are, you know, rather than like book length or even like mine, which is in between chap and, and book length, the long poem section. But um, I just assigned Rachel Zucker's um, 
an anatomy of the long poem, you know, and um, I actually wrote down a quote um, that I just I love from that. She says the poet writing the long poem is an ant moving crumbs from the majestic picnic, always aware of her own shortcomings and inadequacies. The poet writing a long poem is an artist at work, not a priest offering the word to an illiterate flock. And I, I mean, you know, she comes on hard. Uh, and I like that about her. But I think that the sort of humility demanded of it, even in spite of or in addition to the long poems sort of incredibly intimidating history, um, it's uh, ultimately, if one sticks with it, the folks I've known, it's it's a pretty humbling experience. It certainly was for me. The I think the unfiltered letting everything in, somehow elevating a lot of things that might not be elevated in all poems um, and and bringing things down to like that leveling effect is really um, beautiful. And, and I mean, I say that having read for today and knowing that you have, you reminded me so much of um, William Carlos Williams in the best way, because there's a lot of variety in terms of your form. Um, and you, it's not A.R. Ammons, right? Where he's like, I'm going to use the exact same form, this whole thing. And you're like, okay. Um, garbage. Yeah. You... <laughs> <laughs> yes. And by garbage, we mean A.R. Ammons lung poem. Yes, we're not, we, we're do. Not gonna... we do. We do mean <laughs> just, that. Just in case our listeners have not read that, had the joy of that poem. Um so I have the edition of Spring and Doll that has um, C.D. Wright's introduction. Um, and I mean, I really feel like we're in a really awesome orbit right now because I cite Rachel Zucker's um, long poem, Anatomy of a Long Poem, in an essay that I wrote about C.D. Wright's casting Deep Shade. So, you know, now that we've come full, full circle here um, in terms of long poems and hybridity and like Southern poets and, you know, A.R. Ammons was North Carolina. And so she has this, she starts her introduction. And I'm just going to read a tiny portion to spring and all. And C.D. Wright writes, the great war is barely in the background. The fatal flu pandemic fills the void, concentrating on the young and healthy. This weird little book is brought into the world the same month as the Munich Beer Hall butched Hitler's first major drive to seize control. Among artists and writers, the urge for renewal is gaining ground in the aftermath of monstrous destruction in the bud of wars to come. Mm. It is boggling that so much hardy artistic innovation has commenced to proliferate and thrive. Do or die. Those who can, do. Even the wreckage of Europe is tempting to the young, creative, contrary, and restless. One American writer stays put, finishes school, starts a medical practice. One American writer sticks around to catch the babies. And of course, you know, we have it. I can't, I'm going to forget the title of the poem, but the in the hospital poem that he has, mm. um, I think really puts us and not to get us too far off track. And I, I dearly want to hear <laughs> Your thoughts on, I mean, there's always going to be in my head, like there's the wasteland and then there's spring and all. Um, and it's not like Elliot's just dealing with the wasteland and, you know, spring and all is, is a, you know, toxically positive or like, just a, you know, it's not like pure positivity. There's so much else going on, but it does have a different framework than right. the wasteland. Yes, absolutely. 
And I think for me personally, um, I think both poles are there in in sort of um, my thinking and my process and my reading. Um, I know, you know, of the some some of the texts that sort of were important to me as I thought about the long poem. I mean, C.D. Wright, obviously. Uh, Deep Step um, and um, One with Others, really important texts for me, though. I, I, I mean, there's nothing by her that I don't adore. Um, I think another one, I know I mentioned this before we got on the air, but Claudia Rankin, Keen's uh, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American lyric was really important for me. Um, and James Schuyler's uh, Morning of the Poem, both the book and the long poem, because the sort of accepting the asymmetry of this book, which is 60 pages of a long poem and how many pages, I guess, closer to 26 pages of short poems accepting that sort of asymmetry as somebody who does have a little bit of the high modernist in me um was difficult uh that that level of asymmetry but Schuyler gave me a lot of um permission and the sort of arrangement of that book and I think there may be other collections by him but morning of the poem also I say ass ends with a big old, big old chunky poem. And before that has these sort of lyrics. And I think Hart's Needle, um, Snodgrasses does that as well. And, you know, Snodgrass isn't really a poet that I'm I'm that close to, but, but definitely Schuyler um, helped me a lot. And Patterson, I, Spring and All, amazing. <laughs> I mean, and, and just a, a book I adore. But Patterson as well is something that I kind of came back to because of the the place-oriented, you know, aspect of that. I find, and this is just an aside, I find Patterson so much more difficult in some ways than Springendall. And I'm not sure if it's just because, you know, American students are, are have grown up with pieces of Springendall anthologized outside of their natural habitat, which is weird. Um, <laughs> but then when you see them, like you see the whole kind of ecosystem of the poem and you see the parts and you're like, wow, we're still at it with Russia. And you know, it's like all these, these elements, you know, like the flu, the, you know, there's so much um, there. And then like, oh yes, also spring, um, which, oh, and you know what? I had this question for you that I was thinking about. And I think I hadn't written it down because I, I don't love framing it this way, but I do think a lot about Elliot saying that um, the dissolution of his first marriage was the um, mind frame out of which the wasteland was written. And I'm, I'm butchering that quote a little bit. Um, was the state of mind out of which. And so I did have a, like a state of mind question for you. Like, like what, what is the state of mind um, of for today out of which it came to be, especially thinking about um, pandemic literature and thinking about, um, I don't know, it's because you're, it's not a book that's purely post COVID, 
right? Mm -hmm. It's, I'm, it's taking place. It's living with, it's continuing. It's like, um, that acknowledgement though, like runs really strong throughout. Yes. Um, that's a great, that that's really a great thing to, to think about. Um, and I can talk a little bit of sort of about some things that provoked, I guess the book and it's also, I think it's, it's temporal span is really, it's big. Um, and the book is big in some ways, even though it doesn't even hit a hundred pages, it's a big, you know, feeling book, I guess. Um, and I would say, I've got several things to say about that. So I'll just, I'll just start talking if that's okay. Uh, I think place interests me as a, as a poet, probably more than anything. Um, and I just loved your conversation with Aaron Malone where you all talked about place and that was so rich for me. And so in this book, you know, my neighborhood as this, um, and I live in New Orleans, but my neighborhood, and I never name New Orleans and the neighborhood is not like this is this neighborhood. Absolutely. But still there's this sort of bright for me, I was living in kind of this bright yet blurred vision of it. That was inside of the life of writing the poem uh, in the whole book. Um, and I think I moved here in 2001. I started writing this book about 10 years ago. So in about 2004. And I've heard other writers say, I don't, you know, and this is definitely held true for me that um, I write about place at a distance, usually a place that I'm no longer in that I've left. And something of that longing and that distance kind of behooves, you know, creativity. But um, that was a problem because I had moved here in 2001 and I kind of, you know, I set my cap to staying. And so it was like, well, what do I, what do I do? But eventually it kind of came careening in um, or I allowed it in. And I think making it more neighborhood than like having the feeling some kind of obligation or weight on my shoulders to write about or through this city, a city that has been written about so magnificently by so many contemporary, you know, recent poets, living poets, Mona Lisa Saloy, Charisma Price, you know, there's so many amazing poets doing this. I don't, that was too much for me. But when I shrunk, was able to shrink it down to the neighborhood, um, it started to come in. Also, my father died when I was six months pregnant, which is um, the rarely does this happen. But in this book, the first poem written for the book, the first poem written for the book is a Katrina poem that was written in 2006. That's the only outlier. Otherwise, everything was written within a 10 year span. So in 2014 is when I um, started writing The Sonnet Crown. And that was um, after my dad's death. And it was an attempt to, in the way grief works, to bring him, to make him hear me, to make him hear me uh, talk about my child um, that I was pregnant with and to bring that to the fore. Um, and so the way for me to do that was to write uh as my father was a German professor and, you know, a reader of, of fairly formal kind of pseudo formal poetry, um, big Rilke fan though, it was not that formal, um, was to collage the sort of shared text we had 
you know, and, and he was very much a mentor to me as a poet. Um, and so I had to get his attention. I had to make him listen. So thus the formality of it. And it was like, I knew he would listen to that. Um, I had to bring him back. Um, and then the back work later in revision over a period of years was to bring that into some accessibility for readers and yet keep, try to, right? <laughs> we don't know what we do and how the reader is going to take it, but attempt to keep the confidentiality of it, but also make it so there's some accessibility. So that was provocative. Um, and then, of course, being um, a motherhood, you know, and, and poets who write about that, like Lucille Clifton, which, you know, amazing conversation about with that with Steve Leva, Stephen Leva, and then Nicole Cooley's um, Girl After Girl has inspired me as well. It's um, so, so sort of writing into that topic, again, a topic where it's like that I had shied from in some ways with the concerns, again, kind of these concerns from the big old canon and all of that stuff of like, oh, what is universality, which I really don't, I think is complete BS, but it's still deep seated in my brain somewhere. And so having to work through like, okay, you know, I give a shit. I am going to, I am writing into this and, and it doesn't matter. It's already seated in me. So now I, or I've already started that. So it's going to happen. So I'm, I'm fanning through your manuscript because I'm thinking about the line where you say, I, I hate misquoting so badly, but my memory is like a sieve. I was making bread yesterday and I was reading the list of ingredients and the amount of times I have to go back and look at the page because I've forgotten what the measurement is. Um, but you say you have a line about poetry not being memoir. Mm. And can you tell me what that is so I don't misquote you here? Yeah, it comes into the long poem yes. a number of times. Um, and it is that line. It is poetry oh, is not memoir. It's this okay. sort of corrective that comes in. You know, and and throughout the the book, there are these kind of little notes being made in the head of the poet as we're going along. And one of them is a sort of correction. You know, poetry is not memoir. Poetry is not memoir. And it, I think it's repeated four times. The final time it's repeated, I attempt to bring it down by saying, who said that even? Um, because the other side of the elegy, there's the elegy, the birth, and then there's the other elegy that I did not think would come into the book, but um, for my dear, dear friend, um, Valda, who was, uh, while I was writing the book, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And so during covid going and and seeing her in the hospital, um, you know, going and getting our fast food together, uh, you know, with her, you know, chemo sessions and all of that. So there's a point at which it breaks down and is basically like, who said that even and why not um, is sort of my answer to it, because it's it's one of those sort of maxims that gets, I think, kind of it was said in a workshop I heard uh, from a workshop leader. <laughs> That's the secret. <laughs> it was it was in order to put a, a, a poet in their place. 
they were told um, about their their work. Poetry is not memoir. And it really pissed me off. So and, and it also feels appropriate to this sort of uh, one pole, the Elliot pole of this this book, which I fall, you know, I, 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 I am definitely vulnerable to and interested in. And but it's also I. I question it and I have big problems with it. So, so that does come in as a little refrain. And then I'm like, what the hell, what is this? Thank you so much for that. Um, kind of filling that in and opening it up. I mean, it's interesting to me that you could read the same long poem or you could read the same text and whether the author says this isn't a memoir or whether they say this is a memoir, like it will be the same text in front of you, um, mm-hmm. which is going to be something that's made. And I mean, I love, I love that friction in your, in your poem, which when I was reading it, I was reading it as a like little gentle reminder to the reader, like, Hey, don't, don't assume too much. Like, don't just scoop all of this up and be like, I know this person now. Like, it's like when someone meets you and they're like, I feel like I know you. And you're like, whoa, whoa, (laughs) you don't, (laughs) you know, it's a, and that's like a wonderful, beautiful thing that books do is like brings us to community and brings us into connection. And, um, but still it's, it's a different, it is a different thing. Um, and you were telling me an incredible story. Um, we were talking about nonfiction fiction Hmm. at the beginning. Um, could you would you would you be interested in retelling that story or yeah one of the the books that i mean it's a book there are books that you know are a like one sitting read because it's just this passionate kind of relationship with the text and that was my experience of um don't let me be lonely in american lyra it's also my experience of deep step come shining um and and i think with uh rankin's text don't let me be lonely um it you know, I read it, I swallowed it in one sitting, like, you know, and I, I know it just busted open for so many people. And this is at least the, what I was told. So this is a secondhand thing. But a friend of mine was in the program at Brown, in the MFA program, and she came and visit, visited and let them know uh, when being asked questions about that text, that it was not, in fact, um, memoir it was not it was not autobiographical it was not a confessional poem that it uh, much of it was falsified so or not falsified but you know it was it was created right it was a uh, um and so you know whether I, i'm not sure whether it was that she didn't have a friend who was dying of cancer or this or that but there was some element of it that was not in fact true to the life of claudia rankin the poet and human living in the world and from what I was told, the class was very upset. They were very upset by this. Um, and I remember my friend, who's a very avant, you know, experimental writer, he was upset. And I was like, what are you thinking? It was like, it's it's not like she has somehow um, it indebted to you. You know, she's not being brought on the Today shows or something to be grilled about the year that something happened or some claim that she's made in a memoir that's a bestseller all over the world. It, it, it was ridiculous to me, but at the same time, um, I understand we get 
deeply attached to a text. And the way, I'll just say one other thing, C.D. Wright deals with that in an interesting way with uh, Deep Step, which I understand was rooted in, you know, the, the trip with Deborah Luster, the road trip, and Deep Step Comes Shining. And in that text, she keeps saying, I don't want to misquote, but I think I'm right. Do you know where you are now? Do you know where you are now? And so on another level, poetry is not memoir. On the one hand, I got ticked off because I heard this, you know, a student sort of being corrected by a leader by saying that, which anytime somebody says to somebody, this is not this in a classroom, I am unhappy uh, and angry. So, but there's other piece of it, which it was a little bit of my, you know, do you know where you are now? You know, it's, it's this soft touch because she she gives us some names of places, but it's very hard to locate yourself in Deep Step. And that's one of the pleasures of that text. I it's On the one hand, it's so visual. It's so gorgeous. I'm so in the hills. On the other hand, where precisely? And she knows she's kind of screwing with me and bringing it closer and then pulling it away, bringing it closer and pulling it away. Yeah, you know, while you were speaking, I was just thinking about how you know, you choose, publishers choose what they put on the back of a poetry text. And sometimes it's nonfiction uh, and sometimes it's fiction. But if you just have poetry, you don't have a problem. <laughs> it's like, uh, but it's interesting because I think poetry is the highest growing nonfiction category. And like, I don't remember, it was a few years ago, it, like poetry was the top selling nonfiction category. Um, which is very interesting. I just think it's very, very interesting. Um, knowing what we do know about memory and um, memoir, but you're right. It's not like a, there's not going to be a James Frey scandal about like what you didn't actually go to prison, what you didn't, but I've heard, you know, I've, I've heard poets talk like the author of contemporary American poetry I can remember who he's married to, and I can't remember. <laughs> this is so bad. John Muriel. So John Muriel's book, and right now I'm pausing because I don't remember whether it's Murillo or not. But there are poems that are, they read as deeply confessional. And he's like, that didn't happen to me. That, And so that is also a very, very interesting tension if... It is reading like a confessional poem mm -hmm. with a, you know, with an I narrative with a, you know, like it's making these moves and, um, and right. It's, it's, it is persona poetry, but it's persona in the guise of confession. So it's, it's not like you're given a speaker. It's not like mm -hmm. you've set up to see character. So mm -hmm. there's some, I mean, I think it's really cool slippage and it's really interesting and it's very telling who we assume something happened to, right? I remember not quite knowing how to feel about citizen. Yeah. And I remember talking with my undergraduates about it when I was teaching at the time. I said, well, and I said, wait, I think, I think she, it's just a compilation of many separate speakers. And I said, because all of this couldn't have happened to one person. And I remember specifically my like women of color students in the room looked at me and they just made this face. And I was like, oh, yeah, all of that could have happened to one person. And they were like, yep, yep. And um, and I mean, that is so interesting, like how inflected these texts are with mm -hmm. um, identity and who you are and um, your social experience. And um, but that that is the poet's um, 
the gift to like weave all of that and make something out of it. And, you know, the truth being more important than facts <laughs> are, right. um, I think it was Aaron Malo who brought up Claudia Rankine as, oh, it was really important to her that she always include facts that could be looked up in her text yes. as, um, and I thought that was really fascinating, like that there are like touchstones or anchors or, you know, we're, our children are the great Googlers. I mean, they will look anything up, like someone's Googling right, right this second. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's been very, um, that, it, yeah. And it's a tricky thing because on the one hand, um, I believe in the, you know, the speaker is artifice and all of these things. On the other hand, it must be utterly correct, right? So there's like this sort of historical um, piece in in the book, uh, a number of historical pieces, but one is sort of flashing back to my father's time uh, living in Germany and these letters that I have um, of his that have come back. And the while, you know, there are certain things I can play with, what is happening that month on that date in the part of G Germany he's in, if it's going to be tested, like I have a moment where he's walking through um, the Black Mountains and he's, you know, he's moving through and it's snowing. Well, if it wasn't snowing on that day because the letters are dated, then I have a problem. So that's the kind of data that I I love to to get into i'm sorry it wasn't the black mountains if you can change that it was the black forest that he was walking through um and so i've got to make sure that that's exactly how the weather was there as i you know go go into it so there are certain things where it's like that better be right and then there are other things where like for me it's like i have a sort of gauge of like where i'm not gonna go it, there are things even though v is in here who is similar to my friend Valda, who died, there are things, of course, in our actual correspondence and friendship and things that would never go into the poem that are just not, that's not where they're going. Uh, maybe it doesn't work for the poem. Maybe there are things that I want to keep close. Then there are other things that I would never write or claim if I did not have experience there. That's my gauge. I can't say it should be anyone else's, but there are other things I would not claim if it were not, you know what I mean? Like, you know, dealing with certain aspects of mental illness in the family and drug addiction and overdosing. I would not have that if it weren't something I had personal experience with. But that's my, that's like my line in the sand sort of with some stuff. Yeah, the selection, like... I think the selection or, or what gets into um, particularly writing that leans towards journalism or report um, forms that I am very, very much drawn to. And I know we've already brought up Rachel Zucker, like, you know, mm -hmm. someone who is very attentive to the daily and the ordinary because it is so much stranger than we give it credit for. <laughs> Did you want to talk a little bit about the relationship of for today with Inger Christensen's alphabet? Um, I can absolutely. Um, that is a text that I I tend to read in 
a book or two in I read a, usually two books in tandem as a kind of answer to each other. Not that anybody necessarily is is interested in, though I think that this probably is of interest to probably a number of critics who have written very deeply about it. And I'm ignorant because I was coming at it more just from a um, a very creative sort of immersed in the language way. But for me, Alphabet by Inger Christensen and the Duino Elegies um, by Rilke were books that I, I returned to together throughout this, um, the span, which I guess was of the 10 years, it was sort of the last four or so years um, of the, of the process, maybe four to five. Um, and Alphabet is, um, you know, it, it's translated into English, um, but it's originally in, um, it's by the Danish writer Inger Christensen, ABC Darian, uh, in Fibonacci, a Fibonacci sequence in the way. And I guess th th so many things were speaking to me about it. It was speaking to me um, because of the sort of what what she's willing to include when she's thinking about eco-devastation. Um, also the childlikeness of an ABC Darian and just how friendly that is, even though um, it's it's such heady material and incredible. It just opens, you know, apricots exist. All right, I'm good, I'm in. Um, so loving thinking about that and thinking about sort of inherent to it um, and inherent to the Duino elegies, the sort of piece of um, thinking about humanity, thinking about this realm that we're in here together as we're talking to each other and thinking as, you know, Rilke is like at the realm beyond and reaching and reaching for it, you know, to sort of bring the things of this world save them inside yourself and sort of bring them into that realm and have this exchange with the angels. Whereas Christensen, I read as being very much in the world of this eco-devastation with all of its horror and glory and the ending of the poem, which is just completely um, oh, as devastating as it can be, where it's, you know, it's the end and everything's annihilated, nuclear annihilation, and you have the children who have survived by hiding in caves. Um, and that's who's still here. And that's, a, you know, that's the end of the, the poem. It's really a brutal, um, uh, but utterly gorgeous and I find very accessible text. Thank you for outlining it because I know I've seen some people talk about it a little, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure like what is the general like, has everyone read, you know, Christensen? Has everyone, do they know what it is, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. um. I'm just having a, a moment where I'm thinking, oh, there was something that came up for me that had to do. Oh, so your epigraph is an accumulated weekday of angelic orders. And I always have this really like mm, agonistic relationship with my epigraphs. Like I find something I adore. I'm like, this is it. This is perfect. And I live with it and I sit with it. And it just doesn't stay and it trades out multiple times. And then whenever I see that quote again, I'm always like, oh, you, we were meant to be, but we weren't. And so I'll, I was wondering at what point, um, like, did you land on like, oh, this is the perfect epigraph. And then, and then why? Because I find it a really um, 
provocative, cool, kind of mysterious epigraph, um, especially before you've encountered any of your poems, right? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, It, so I went, I'm a very, very, very slow writer and I kind of pile just unwieldy masses of material together and then chip, chip away. So I probably had, you know, 50 epigraphs at one point that I thought about It, it, you know, but as Al Alphabet sort of started to become more and more of a presence in the book, I thought, okay, well, this is becoming, this is becoming bigger. So I started to draw to some of those epigraphs. And I think it happened in tandem with the title. The title was an accident for the collection. Um, I was struggling with all of these very wrought, you know, titles, very poetry, heavy titles. And I was working I went on a residency to Mississippi which is like driving distance I could get back home if there was an emergency because there was a lot of stuff going on with the family at that point but I was I went there I went offline completely didn't even have a computer with me just brought um the manuscript and some books and went and ordered it and and finished it in my notes and so I had all these post-it notes on all these different piles and and poems hung everywhere all over this little tiny place that I was staying and um one of the post-it notes was labeling them by sort of date and time and it was like for today so that was the work to do that day and I went all of these like really you know these titles and I went round and round and finally part of working through the long poem and changing the way I write, which I hope I'll continue to change the way I write, which that book, that poem did. Um, at, at some point I gave in to that title. I said, okay, it's without strain. It's true as a dedication. It's true also as, um, and it, it, it's a throwaway in a sort of way. And also it gives a sense of, of ephemera. You know, like the post-it note. So once I attached to that, I then, the the epigraph became clear as a sort of answer to the title and a read-in to the rest of the the book. But I thought about adding more lines because it's just a one line. But as I added more lines, it started to comment on the writing style. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to interfere with the reader so I guess those are some things I thought about and whether they're effective or not is another matter but that's what I was thinking about thank you for that that's so helpful and I love that you talked about um your title and how your title came to be um and I think it's like a really right instinct in me as a reader that I'm connected with spring and all because um I do think that there is a real, I think a lot about the sunlight in this book, um, and the walking and, um, there's a lot of promise. And I mean, the way the kind of like gates open and the neighbors are there. And it's just, I think it's a really beautiful thinking about what's, what was so lost during quarantine and lockdown and like what, you know, like the world after now, um, where it's still so important that we acknowledge like ongoing COVID, right? Um, But that like thinking about community formation and thinking about like how we reassemble or how we assemble and 
Um, I mean, it's interesting to me that a lot, for me, a lot of connection was over Zoom. And then, yeah, talking to neighbors in their yards, right? Like when they're out, um, because that was like safe. We weren't in crowds, we were indoors. Like, um, and yeah, so like the, the spring and all impulse for me is like, there's something of that in for today and in the presentness too. Absolutely. I, th- I think presentness and time in general, um, as far as the season, it's so important for me in that poem that I was, you know, and I was working on it for so many years, you know, spring would return. Mm-hmm. And I would think, cause I knew, you know, sort of exactly where it was. Cause I have to lay that out with recreating the alphabet or alphabet, our version, um, in, in the book, the, the, the poet and the, the child's version of alphabet. I'm doing that sort of by day. So it's like we're arriving on a Wednesday and I'm having to think about how far it is from, you know, Easter and all of these things. So when the time would come around again, you know, it would be like, oh, okay, it's the springtime of the poem. And that that very much was um, a hinge and the presentness was really important, but also being able to sort of fold in these little tableaus that would drop back into the past flex it out a little bit. So you're right. I mean, absolutely. Williams, thank God for Williams, right? I mean, in so many reasons, thank God for that text. And um, and George Oppen's of being numerous too, I think as far as um, looking to to others and the world around and, and uh, acknowledging what we don't acknowledging privacy and and the wonderful ways in which we can sort of intersect but also where we can't intersect and and seeing that in others is something that i i think often uh does so beautifully and there's something that's so generous i think about the long form and what it does um what it opens itself to and it's not It's not, you know, I remember learning the first time I learned that like a poem is a a verbal artifact and, you know, it's often shorter than one page and it's like this crystalline, untouchable, little perfect thing. And, um, and when a poem leans into imperfection and variety and like, oh, then suddenly you let in all your faults too. Like a lot of things Mm -hmm. come in with it, um, because there's not so much, because like, what, what would a perfect long poem look like? Like what? Um, well, infinite. So, you know, that there's so much more room and I want to tie this back and, and I am happy to move to other poems. I'm just obsessed with your long poem. So, um, that's why (laughs) let's talk about for today. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, on page 58, when you have the lines, a friend told me grieving too long is selfish, warps the griever, the way rainy seasons warp old wood. Maybe I want to be warped. Um, and just that generosity of like, you know, it's, it's what our therapists tell us. Like, it doesn't have to be good or bad. It can just be like, you can just let it in. Um, and it's so, that is so antithetical to how we want to live as like judging creatures. But, but I really appreciated that so deeply. Because there is, you know, I think we were talking about it the other day, like, well, 
on on Blue Sky, this came up in terms of fiction. Like, what's it mean to read a, a book that uh, like a contemporary fiction that has no acknowledgement of COVID whatsoever? It's like it never happens, like in an alternate. And that's interesting to think about, particularly mm. with fiction more than poetry, weirdly for me. But mm-hmm. anyways, to return to your lines. And we have very little, even from the 19 and 18 you know, influenza, we have very little from what I, I did some research that that actually um, head on mentions in fiction the pandemic. And I'm I'm I should know her name off the top of my head, but there there is one piece of literature that I I turn to, one short story that deals with that nineteen eighteen flu. Um, but I, how much are we doing it? And here, Carolyn is referencing the novella Pale Horse, Pale Rider by the author Catherine Ann Porter. And this novella was originally published in 1938 in the Southern Review. That's really interesting to me. I always think of, you know, Iris Murdoch's literature does many things. You know, a poem doesn't have to look at everything that's happening. <laughs> right. And I think it's it's harder when it's a story, like the world of a story. Um, mm. I know a lot of us read like Stations Eleven and like got really into Emily St. John Mandel and um and like that reality and feeling it, it having it acknowledged is really important. But yeah, just I think the openness of the long poem, um the openness to like yeah, okay. So, you know, the speaker is saying, maybe I want to be warped, like acknowledging like I have changed. <laughs> and that is, you know, in some ways, neither here nor there. It just is, um, is really significant, important work. And even when you're doing all this like season keeping and plant naming and walking, and it's very meditative and it's very um, grounding, right? Um but I think that's such a a beautiful facet of for today specifically. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, the there's um it, I I was working inside of a kind of brightness um with with the writing of the poem, which I kind of I kept on my physical body all the time, um, which is in the poem that I did that. Um and it's something actually interestingly I'm a big fan of Dictate by Teresa Cha and in Kathy Park Hong's uh, Minor Feelings, the memoir, you know, she talks about um, Cha doing that, like insisting on sleeping with the with the poem, sleeping with Dictate. And I think I think it was in a letter that we have from Cha. I mean, everything's in the Berkeley Berkeley archive, but um, the, since her family gave it over, but it's um, I remember thinking, oh, yes, 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 that's that's it. Um and and there is a lot of um, kind of the counterweight to the brightness and the season and the you know the youth is is in in this like that moment of like okay well if you if you grieve too long you know that's selfish you're going to be and it's like well and 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 the the poet's still grieving her father and. Um, the poet speaker and is also now kind of grieving in advance the death of the friend who's not dead by the end of the the book the death of V, and it's like so that that sort of um 
instability, um, even sort of measuring everything by the life that's gone and the life that we know is going to be going. So there's a tremendous amount of grief, I guess, and sadness in the book that's that's pulling. But the the naming the flowers and the the exquisiteness of the place that um the the speaker's lucky enough to live in is also here. So it's here. There it's all here. Um at least that's the way it felt as I was writing it. And being warped is okay. I mean, it's not, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like being warped is, is part of being alive. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think all the time about Octavia E. Butler's God is change. Um, like we're changed. You know, we don't live one life. We live many my child, we took a walk this morning, which is another reason I think uh, I've been walking with my kids this week. And so feeling a lot of resonance with your text and the walking and um, my child began telling me about something. And they said in, in my past life, and then they started talking and I said, in your, do you mean um, in your memory or do you mean in a past life? And they paused and they said, in my psychedelic memory. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And I just, you know, that openness. Um, and like, yeah, that, that I was like, that makes sense. <laughs> we just kept on walking. They told me their story. Um, you know, like all these forms are, are learned. Um, and, you know, you see that between like the parent and the child in your text with Christensen's alphabet, like, oh, these things exist. And I, I love seeing that text um, woven into like the life between these two as they share it. Like that is so beautiful. And I'm being able to share a poem that way, like being able to, I mean, I just, I love, I think that's like a gift I don't take for granted is being able to share poems with my children. I mean, the way they respond to it is very visceral and, it was pr- it's probably giving me bad luck for the new year, but the first poem I recited this year was Fire and Ice to my child because we were laughing about something. And I was like, oh, that wasn't a good choice. But I recited it to them and they looked at me and they were like, what? That's a poem. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's amazing. Like that's a, that's a beautiful, I, I would rather have a poem spoken to someone in my life during the day than most of most of my engagements with poetry like that's the best I think you're right I I think it is too and and it's um it I'm lucky to sort of also live in a community um where and my family is where it really that sort of division between art and life poetry and life is we don't keep those things separate very well um, which is part of what's just so amazing about the, you know, this place where there's, you know, carnival and, you know, the the, the sort of there's there are just so many wonderful writers here. Um, and there are also storm evacuations and local floods and all of this other just that makes it a very difficult place to live. But when you fall in love with it, there's no other place to really live. I remember one of my, it's a strange memory, but we were, when I was uh, uh, 
Okay, so I was in charge of throwing a bachelor party for one of my friends who, uh, this was way back. Um, it was not long after Katrina when we had come back. And um, I was in charge of the bachelor party for, it was a double bachelor, two men getting married. And um, still married, we were together before. It was wonderful, two, two of my closest friends, but I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to embarrass them. So I planned the bachelor party, which was... Uh, it was done in true New Orleans fashion, I'm pretty proud to say. Um, we kidnapped them. Um, so we pulled up in a blacked out van. Um, we were all in costume. Uh, they had to be waiting on street corners. Um, and they were, you know, they were thrown in the van. They were tied up. They were, you know, it was it was full tilt, right? I won't get into all of the details, but it was intense. So then we took them to the quarter. Um, and I won't say all the locations that we toured, but we toured a lot of locations in, um, in the quarter. Um, and we were just, there were, there were not that many people that were back in the city at this point still. Um, and I was in a tangerine bikini and, you know, uh, my husband was, he was in like a silver gown, and I'm trying to think what everybody else was wearing. I mean, people were just, I mean, but nobody bats an eye really here, right? And then there were, I had written that, the, what is my Katrina poem, August 29th, 2005, it's called in there. And then there was somebody there who loved that poem. It was part of Intersection, which came out of Antenna Press, which still exists here. There's Antenna Press and Gallery. Um, Press Street. And it's this wonderful collective and they do so much outreach and have been great. This was when it just started. And this was the first publication they put out and they sort of had a blind collaboration where you'd be given an intersection and somebody would write a poem and then a visual artist would create a piece. So I was given, you know, this intersection in the city and an artist was given that intersection. The artist was Yusin Gandara, who created this, this wonderful art piece. And so it had just come out and somebody had read it and was like, I want to hear that poem. Of course, we were all a little bit, you know, um, <clears throat> yeah, exuberant and to be together. And so I'm there and I was like, I can't do that. And they were like, no, 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 I've got it. And so right there on Bourbon on a street corner in my tangerine bikini and my cowboy hat and my tangerine uh, spike heels, I did a reading. It was just, it was just that moment. Um, but that moment, it wasn't one moment. And, and that's what I am so in love with about, there's so many things, but it's the people of this place. And the fact that somebody can be like, okay, well, we're doing a reading, but oh, wait, you're here. You've got a, you know, somebody who's waiting the tables. You've got something in your pocket. I remember there was a reading that Nordetta Adams had and somebody who was waiting the tables was like, is there any way I can read? And this Nordetta Adams is a poet locally. It was wonderful. And, and um, she was like, yeah, of course. And so he just like got up and, and joined the reading and read what was in his, you know, pocket it's it's here. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This feels like the perfect place to ask you to read August 29th, 2005, if you're open to that, to close this out, because I can't think of a, a better or more lovely or exuberant introduction to your poem. So August 29th, 2005. August 29th, 2005. 
O pony of South Durbany, O leaping yellow, On yellow pole, carousel pony of South Durbany, Flooded pony, O risen out of cobbled chimney, Of shuttered mud hut, of shut-down pawn shop, Pony of South Durbany, In attic windows, in amphibious tanks, in blackhawks, in styrofoam boats, in whale-muraled vans, in the alligator belly, up on the highway, pony of South Durbany, pony of South Durbany, the airboat mother. Her Gatorade, her S earrings, her babying her baby night sky, baby blanket slipping off the slipping head. Oh, yellow-crowned night heron on the up ended light pole, the golden retriever in the black marsh, the rotting Rottweiler on chain, link pony of South Durbany, and stadium domes, and sky lights of domes emptied of pony of South Durbany, emptied of spotlights on boys mid-spree horsing, and Boy Scout knots across chests on gurneys, oh gurneys of South Durbany, slick jackets knotted at the waist waist deep in South Durbany, chest deep and dog paddling, pony of South Durbany, past steeple bell speakers, past six headbanging hotel palms, pony of South Durbany, they crash onto crashed Pontiacs, past umbrella oars, past hands waterlogged into paper mache gloves raising the dead. Reflected power line for reflected aluminum canoes to pass past them all, pony of South Durbany, oh, pony of the mud hut, floated into the street, kid clothes still on the clothesline, pony of the thread count, count of those under sheets, their feet jerking, how can they still be jerking, pony of the body count. On baggage, carousels, body, on slate, tiles, in attics, in lawn chairs, in short sleeves, the lawn chair, in parking lots, count, on grass, in sunflower flip-flops, in rain, rubber-banded, cornmeal box shoes, a girl I remember, in shopping carts, in a wheelchair, under a t-shirt veil, count, in off-the-shoulder hospital gowns, in uprooted, black-rooted trees, in prosthetic limbs, the limbs, the souvenir boas, the dyed jet hair body in the long pelted mink, backless on chain link, in armoires count, in armories count, in arms count, on buses, on interstate ramps, arms raised like a conductor against the sky, in cerulean housecoats with foam white buttons, I count, exploding on South Durbany, in one drenched sock, hand in hand, body sighing on plywood, in the air, on knees, cross-legged on the airport floor, you, pony of South Durbany, in the prettiest beaded ghost suit drying on a shredded screen door, I remember, concentric rings in the floodwater, cattle dog nosing, black hawk hovering, pony, pony of South Durbany, the long yellow hides of summer. Gorgeous. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you so much. The only thing we didn't talk about that I realized I was like, I wanted to talk about that. I do love your cover art and I love that it's the flood state um, mm. by Jennifer Shaw. I just think that's like, I mean, really and truly thinking about like, here's Springendall 
coming mm. out of disaster, mm. right? And then here's also like like for today, and there's the the framing of like disaster, right? That there is life after and life that goes on and the palette, everything about that. I think it's a gorgeous and is it it's a house on stilts? Is that what's it is, um, and I would love if there's any way to needle in something to Jennifer about Jennifer's work, I would love to do that because oh, yeah. she, I want to lift her up, you know, in, in this moment because she has lifted me up um, with her work. So the, 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 what's featured on the, the cover is from Flood State. And they were actually created um, by using toys. Um, and I'm going to read from her site what, what Jennifer Shaw did. And it's jennifershaw.net. Um, because I am in no way an artist. I don't understand. But I know I fell in love with this image while I was writing. I located it online. I've since bought the piece. The, a print hangs in my house. Um, but here's what she wrote that she did. Using small toys and commonplace objects, I create photograms by arranging the items directly onto light-sensitive polymer photogravure plates. The exposed plates are printed on Japanese kozo paper for an ephemeral effect that complements their fluid subject matter. In this brave new water world, the skies may be dark and stormy, but fear is tempered by hope. Oh my God. I read that so many times. I looked at this picture so many times long before the book was taken. I even got one of the blurbs before the book was taken, which is insane and sounds like way too much hubris, but um, it was because I wanted this person desperately to read the book. And, and so I was like, Hey, how about writing a blurb? Even though nobody, you know, I haven't sent it out yet. Um, but all that to say what she says about hope, it, so when I looked at this image, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm in love with the fact that she used toys and it calls into that world of childhood and, and trying to get close to the way in this book kiddo sort of is seeing and taking it in. But the idea of hope, it's like you can see it and see the water there and be like, oh, my God. I mean, obviously, it's a dystopian image. It's obviously, you know, horrific and makes a comment on on um the environment. However, we don't know if the water is rising or the water is falling. And most importantly, the lights are on. The lights are on. That's the hope for me is like they're, they're in there. I mean, and that is the, the, the house that I was sort of mentally inhabiting as I as I worked through um, so much of the book, um, but especially with the long poems. So Jennifer Shaw is an amazing artist and she has her own book out of, of her work. Um, and this flood series is, is fantastic. Um, That's amazing. Thank you. I'll make sure to include um, links to her work in our show notes as well. Good, good.